Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well, today's show is inspired by an exchange I recently had on a property forum relating to typical property investment returns. In fact, the poster was specifically interested in joint ventures as a passive or finance partner and whether he could expect to achieve returns of something like 20% per project in such a situation. What do you reckon? Does that sound realistic to you? And if so, what could be the potential downsides? Let's dive into the meat of the subject right now to find out. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. As I mentioned, I recently came across a forum thread where the poster said something like this. I currently own two buy-to-let properties and for some time now have been thinking about my next and future property strategy. I've decided JVing or joint venturing, specifically becoming a private or silent investor is the way I really wish to go. However, having read many articles and case studies, I can't seem to find what the potential or average net returns could be. You see, a wealth management company currently invests a considerable amount of my spare cash in shares. Before surrendering some of that cash into property, as a private investor, I need to be sure it's going to be worthwhile. I mean, could I make 20% plus profit on each property investment? For example, if I provided 100k as a private investor on a property development project, could I realistically receive back something like 120k? I guess in short then, what sort of returns should I expect to make through property and in joint ventures in particular? Well, first of all, I, you know, in answering this question, what I wanted to, to look at was, uh, in fact, I'm going to share a link in the show notes that uh, sets out some of the, the top long-term performing fund managers' uh, performance over the long term, as I mentioned, on Trustnet. And in summary, the best performing fund manager over a 10-year period averaged an annual compound growth rate of 10.4% over 16 years. The fund here relates to stock market returns, of course. Therefore, I would be sceptical about someone generating returns of 20% per year or so on a consistent basis through stock market investing without taking on any significant risk or at least fully understanding what they're doing. There are, of course, exceptions, I'm sure. But speaking of risk, again, I want to share a separate article in the show notes. You'll find the links to these in the show notes if you want to go and take a look that compares the uh, performance and risks between equities and property, along with a couple of other asset classes. Whilst residential property and equities have similar returns overall, equities carry far higher risk as that uh, report outlines. The principal explanation for this from my point of view is that obviously property comes with an underlying asset that has a realizable value if it needs to be called in and disposed of. In businesses this is not always the case and even where there are assets they may have little residual value in a breakup situation. 
Specifically, in terms of property, there is a risk-reward trade-off as well. There are different types of property strategy that can generate different types of project return. It's always difficult to fully predict the total returns available, which might explain partly why the poster couldn't find too much information in case study. But there are a couple of very general guidelines which are based on my own and indeed others' experience. The following examples assume no leverage, or in other words debt, is used and the values provided are, are typical ranges if you like. Um, higher and lower results are going to be possible in individual cases so I'm just trying to give a, a flavour really of some broad ranges when I, when I share these examples so keep that in mind. The first one is long-term buy-to-let in residential property and uh, it's probably in the region of 10-12% to 12 on average nationally which combines both rental returns and capital growth over an extended period of time. And there's quite a lot of evidence which would support that actually. But talking about more specific projects, and the question really was about development projects, developments can come in many, many uh, disguises really, or types. You've got you know, simple things like flips, you've got uh, a little bit more complicated things, but taking an existing structure such as conversion projects, and then you've got your start from scratch building you know, new build uh, developments and that kind of thing in development projects. So let's start with flip projects which uh, here we're going to define as buying and selling a single dwelling or single property for profit. And these could generate anything between 5 and 25% as a general rule. And uh, I say general rule because uh, they are exactly that and, and they can vary. Uh, conversion types of projects, as I mentioned, that's taking an existing type of uh, structure and converting it into something else, if then sold on, should generate anything between 10 and 30%, again, as a general rule. And then we have development projects, which again, if then sold, should generate anything between 15 and 40% on average. And I'm using the, I'm, I keep saying when they're sold, because I, I'm, I'm taking it into consideration that we've just got a specific project, we'll do some work and we'll sell it on to realise the gain here, rather than holding it necessarily for the long term. Of course, if we're going to hold these and refinance them, hold for, hold for the long term, it's going to change the level of returns that we can achieve, because it's going to throw into the equation rental income and that kind of thing. So as I mentioned, on average, probably enough qualifiers there <laughs> to get out of jail if I need to. But remember, these returns would be gross returns, and that's before the joint venture divides up the spoils. So for a 50-50 joint venture, for argument's sake, these numbers would need to be halved to uh, realise each party's uh, resulting profit. The results, uh, aside from buy-to-let, are by project as well. So there could be a little bit of rounding, whether it's up or down, to calculate the annual equivalent returns based on whether a project completes in, in less than or indeed more than a year. So is it possible to get better returns? Well, the short answer is yes, of course, it's possible. Um, taking on more risk should, in theory, generate more rewards. I'm going to start with risk. Um, because you know, I think it's an important factor in property investment to be aware of this. But for example, we could uh, we could seek to gain planning permission in the green belt or a conservation area, and uh, of course that's uh, that's going to that's quite risky, isn't it? Whether it's going to happen, but it could generate significant rewards if we were to achieve that. Equally, it can also go against us, of course. So, for example, if the planning application is declined, and that could leave us with a bunch of abortive costs. So in other words, there's a reason why the potential returns need to be higher for some of these project types, as not all of the work, not all of them rather, work out as planned. Developer margins tend to be higher as they carry more risks, heavier costs, and indeed um, carry several less known issues, let's say.
So there needs to be enough uh, margin in there to cater for that kind of thing. Another way to improve the returns is to use leverage or borrowing, in other words, which could see some of the uh, some of these results potentially improve quite significantly. In fact, but I'm just going to I've just got a simple example I want to illustrate uh, illustrate this uh, for you right now. So let's let's take a a typical pr uh, flip project rather with the following outline numbers with a, a cash sale resulting. So let's say the purchase price is, uh, is £120,000, uh, the total costs and fees are £40,000 and therefore the total cash investment is £160,000, just adding those two numbers together. If the selling price is £190,000, and just keeping it really simple for now, we can probably see at a glance, uh, if you like, or, or listen at a, at a glance, that it's £30,000 profit, which would result in a, an ROI of almost 19%. So it's within the range of tolerance that I explained for a flip project. Uh, you can see the numbers there and you know that's a sort of fairly typical number um, towards the upper end of that particular scale, upper mid end of that scale. And if it took nine months to complete this project, the annual equivalent return here would be 25%. So nine months, 19% is equivalent to 25% over a full year. Now, if we were to look at this same example and this time bring, uh, sorry, use bridging finance at say 75% loan to value um, with an interest rate of 10% per annum plus the finance related costs of let's say two and a half thousand pounds, that's legal fees and, and broker fees and uh, lender fees, that sort of thing. The result for this same project would then be as follows, simply speaking. Again, purchase price 120, total costs and fees, but excluding the finance, 40,000 pounds as before. However, the finance fees here would be 9,250 pounds. So in other words, the total project costs would be 169,250, so it's gone up by the tune of the finance fees. And that means, uh, however, because of financing, there's a uh, total cash investment only 79,250. So that's come down um, to about half the, uh, the funding value and the same selling price of £190,000. So this time we can see that there's a profit figure of, uh, trust me, £20,750, which would result in uh, a return on investment of over 26%. The annual equivalent return would be almost 35%, which compares to the 25% um, annual equivalent return that we just illustrated, which, you know, using, you know, not using any leverage at all. So that illustrates, if you like, the, uh, the benefit of leverage quite well, I think. So in effect, by using a lender's cash instead of our own, despite it eating into the profit, uh, profit margins by over £9,000, we can increase our overall return percentage or our return on investment percentage. However, funding carries its own risks and complexities and with lower value projects, the fixed transaction costs often drag the net profit down as well. So um, in a similar way to a, to a hedge fund or a venture capitalist may use debt to gear up their returns, so too can a property investor or developer, often, uh, often in return for giving up some security, increase their returns as well. And this of course is fine as long as the market doesn't turn against us mid-project or indeed there's a global financial crisis around the corner. <laughs> yeah, we had one of those recently, yeah, you might remember. But to illustrate this, imagine that same project but instead of taking nine months to complete, it takes 18 months instead. It's possibly a little bit un unrealistic with this simple example, but it can happen. But if everything else were to stay the same, so the same purchase price, the same cost of works and the same selling price, the only change then is the cost of finance because we're going to have the, the money out on, on loan for an extra nine months to, to carry it for 18 months instead.
So that would increase the finance costs, finance related costs from £9,250 to £16,000 instead. The result of that being that uh, the, there's an increased cash requirement, goes up to £86,000, and of course it reduces the profit down to £14,000 as well. And in percentage terms, the, the return on investment would fall from 26% to a little over 16%. But if you look at that on an annualised basis, it actually falls down to 11% instead. So we had, I think it was 26%, wasn't it, earlier, uh, coming down to 11% instead. So that, again, illustrates potential downside. So we've, we've illustrated the potential upside of leverage and how we can use less cash and, uh, and get a better return on investment. But the potential downside is if something happens and you know there's a cost overrun, or particularly in the financing side of it, it can dent our, uh, our profitability quite significantly. In other words, leverage magnifies both profits and losses on property projects. Bearing in mind the original question posted on the thread was essentially, can I expect to return 20% as a JV partner? Then I would say this, if you have a modest to high appetite for risk and can set aside sums that can either afford, you can either afford to lose, not gain that much, or at least wait to get back, then more adventurous property development could deliver the desired returns that you're seeking. If using leverage, it could potentially be achieved on flips, conversions, and indeed development projects as well. So it opens up the range really on, on the types of project that can be used when we consider using leverage as well. However, if you're more cautious and wish to protect your capital a little bit more, uh, then, then perhaps it would be uh, wise to set the bar a little bit lower, uh, avoid over leveraging and accept more modest levels of return instead, I would say. So we've looked at some of the upside and the benefits and the returns, but uh, let's, let's have a look at uh, some of the potential risks as well. And uh, we often have to trade off higher risk if we want to see higher returns. So let's consider some of these main risks that could be involved in some of these types of projects. I'm just going to headline them rather than go into express detail, but there's a number of different types of risk. The first category really is project related risks. And this is things like project delays. I illustrated that with a project that took from, you know, estimated to take nine months and it could take 18 months instead. A number of different ways in which that can happen. There could equally be some unexpected costs and cost overruns. So things we didn't foresee, things that cost more money than we expected it to. And indeed quality issues, which might mean we need to do some things again or replace some faulty materials we can't get money back for and that kind of thing. The second category is what I call approvals and permissions related risks. So think first of all about council departments. Uh, we might have to deal with the planning department, licensing, building control and that sort of thing. So different, different departments in the council. And of course the council will have rules and um, procedures and policies that they need to adhere to. And of course we need to adhere to as well. Next category is uh, freeholder and managing agent approvals. So if we've got a leasehold property, for example, we, we might need to get, in fact, we probably will need to get freeholder permission if we want to make any sort of change whatsoever to that property. And then there's utility providers. Um, I've mentioned this one because sometimes, particularly on, on a new build development, we need to get permission, they need to plan it in, there could be a cost associated with uh, putting utilities in place. It could also take time. The third category really is what are called market related risks. 
For example, there could be a drop-off in demand that uh, pulls down our exit values or just slows down the sales. And, and if we've got a number of units that we need to sell to get off a of development, uh, those last couple hold all of our profit. So if it takes quite a long time to, uh, to sell them, it's uh, obviously going to be a long time before we get our, our cash and indeed profit out. And the other market-related risk is more around the, the subject of economic factors, and that could be things like a recession. But other you know, general economic shocks can happen as well, uh, particularly over a longer project duration, such as a new build development. The next category really is finance and legal related risks. This is not necessarily an exhausted, uh, exhaustive list, but I'm just giving some pointers really. But uh, if you think there could be some problems or delays in securing finance, yes, it has been known. I had a very recent example myself. Um, lender policy and criteria that could impact upon the project and indeed there's quite a lot of change at the moment if you're reading about the um, the Prudential Authority and the Financial Conduct Authority making potential changes which are impacting lender policy things are coming in all the time um, bringing about changes indeed costs of finance as well there's going to be fixed transaction costs there could be re-inspection fees there could be penalties incurred for extending a facility particularly if it's an overrun and it's unplanned. And in terms of legal barriers, it could be some, uh, as I say, legal barriers, some irregularities that we need to overcome, some disputes that we need to work our way through, which could take time, could cost money. And then um, perhaps a little bit more subtly, uh, security. We could either have watered down security or, or be demoted down the pecking order in terms of our security interests as well. So that can bring about extra risk, of course. The next area I really wanted to point out was partner-related risks. So this is the joint venture partner themselves or indeed other key stakeholders, uh, potentially not doing what they say they will or, or being obstructive, um, having conflicting objectives or a lack of clear roles between the parties can give rise to, uh, to conflict and uh, misunderstanding as well. And there could even be a, a skills or an experience gap. So just knowing that the partners are in fact skilled and experienced enough to do what they say they would do. Similarly, there could be issues with uh, trades and professionals and mishaps that can happen. Yes, it does still happen. <laughs> I've had a couple of examples where um, you know people have interpreted certain things and it's not proven to be the case. So that, that can have a bearing on our project. But equally, there could be some disputes and indeed just mistakes, basic errors. There could be materials or labour shortages at times as well. Um, often this is, is not foreseen. Um, bricks are very expensive at the moment because some of the raw materials are in short supply. That's just one illustration. The next area really is all about false assumptions and indeed poor due diligence. Of course, this can feed into many of the other factors I'm talking about right now. Uh, one of the biggest uh, things we can do, one of the biggest mistakes we can make is being too optimistic, really. And in particular, failing to have contingencies or consider different perspectives. Normally, I have a, um, a worst case, a mid case and a, and a best case scenario, um, you know, when I'm doing a project plan. So um, we try and even out that natural optimism that we sometimes might have. And of course, there could be errors. We could make mistakes in the research phase in, in one part of the project, which could have a bearing on it. The last category I've, I've called force majeure, which is obviously things outside of our control. Most uh, obviously, this would be things you might see in an insurance policy. Uh, things like acts of God, strikes, war, terrorism, extreme weather, this sort of thing um, is what I mean there. But equally, there could be things like theft, um, loss and damage on site as well. Um, recently had some insurance covered for a, a project I'm undertaking and there are certain exclusions um, because the property is going to be unoccupied for a period of time so there's a potential risk there that we need to carry in the project as a result. 
But then we can have some, you know, what I call personal issues as well. Um, this could be things like health, you know, sickness, you know, just having time off sick, not being able to attend to duties that we might otherwise be, we be looking to do. We might we might have some holiday. Um, we might have competing calls on our time, for example, a job or other business interests, for example, or other property projects, which can uh, call uh, call our time and attention as well. So that's a, that's a kind of a, a broad list, really, of about seven different areas that uh, of risk that we need to to uh, factor in. So it's not just a case of looking at the best returns and the upside, as we've heard. We also need to take a look at the downside. So there we have it then. I wanted to share a quick set of guidelines of what sort of returns we could expect from different types of property project using some typical ranges. And as we've seen, these can range from 5 to 40% um, in total before dividing them out be between the um, joint venture partnership. But we've also seen that we can target the upper end of this range either by accepting greater risk and or by using leverage or debt to reduce our personal cash investment. Leverage can help us to make more with less, so to speak. We, we have then also considered some of the main risks that we need to look out for and uh, manage and indeed get comfortable with if that's the path we would like to take. These risks will not be acceptable to everyone, that's for sure. So um, that's the reason why I'm pointing this out. Um, there's, everybody has their own risk tolerance, I suppose. Joint, joint ventures then are a very interesting area or aspect of investing in property projects. And there's a lot of potential benefits um, that, that can be realized. I personally undertake joint venture projects myself, and uh, I, I, so I speak from personal experience here, of course. However, we should always equally consider the downside as well as the upside in any property investment opportunity. And this means carefully evaluating the risks, understanding what they are, and then being ready to accept the good along with the bad at times as well. And that's what I wanted to cover this week. I hope that's been helpful. I've tried to be realistic during the episode as far as possible, but do always keep in mind that a project that has both a risk element as well as a reward one. Don't just look at the rewards, look at both sides of the equation. And with that in mind, we should be well placed to make a good judgment as to whether it suits our return expectations within our personal risk tolerance before leaping into any particular property project, be that in a joint venture or equally on our own instead. And now, where you can go for more great resources with a shout out. Now, we haven't had a shout out for a while now, so I, I just just before I leave, I just wanted to give a, a small update on a, on a property, a new property book that's just been released. It's a collection of tips from experienced property investors, which also happens to include a contribution from yours truly. <laughs> that's part of the reason perhaps why I'm mentioning it. But um, I think I've had a quick look at the book. It's literally being launched today when I'm recording this. So I've had a look through it and uh, there's some really good tips in there. The book is called The Number One Property Investment Tips from Top UK Property Experts. There's a subtitle, but it gets kind of long, so I'll leave it at that. It's uh, it's available in the Amazon Kindle store uh, for the princely sum of 99 pence. And there's a link in the show notes if uh, if you want to follow it through. I'm not on a royalty or anything like that, especially if it's 99 pence. It's not going to be a very large one anyway, is it? But um, there will be something in there for everyone, I'm sure. So uh, maybe head over to the Amazon Kindle store, grab yourself a copy of that. I'm not sure how long that price is going to be available for, but um, it's a pretty good one. There we go then. That's enough uh, for me for another week. As always, thank you very much for joining me on the show today. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. 
Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.